listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, good morning. Is it actually winter? It's spring, uh, um, autumn. Definitely not spring. Um, but welcome to the many seasons. It'll probably be like 30 degrees on Tuesday. Uh, but that's what we love about Melbourne. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, and we are currently in a series uh, which is called Jesus the Submitted King. And the word submitted instantly conjures up an image of Jesus submitting his will. To submit is to give over your will to something else, someone bigger, something bigger than you. And so often when we think about this, we think about this as this giving up of will, submitting our wills. But what I want to do is I want to talk about a different kind of submitting, and I want to talk about a different understanding of this, which is submitting of the mind. Now this, if you've been following the Lent readings, came up this week when we read from uh, the book of Isaiah on, uh, I think it was early in the week, in the readings, and I just want to refer to part of that particular book, Isaiah 55, the reading, just the end of the reading that was this week, which some of you would have read. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Highlighter, pen on thoughts. Let them then turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And our God, for he will freely pardon. Get your highlighter pen out again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord's. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Heavens and earth doesn't just mean the physical realms there, but the spiritual concept. This concept that God's thoughts are higher than humans' thoughts. This mirrors another famous passage in the book of Job, where Job, who has gone through these tremendous travails, a faithful man, yet has had horrible things happen to him, who around him these friends gather, and the whole time they're questioning Job, they're questioning God. And then the turning point in Job chapter 40, where God answers. And he says... Coming in a storm, verse 6, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man, for I will now question you. For two chapters, we then have this incredible panoramic journey where God takes us almost back to the beginnings of creation, showing the splendors of the universe, the behemoth, these giant creature, the Leviathan, this giant mysterious sea creature representing chaos, And it's like, here are my thoughts. This is my realm of thinking, so much higher than yours. And so we have this sense here that God's thinking is greater than ours, that we cannot simply approach God in the ways that we think about things as humans. So is God just then a mystery, something which we can never truly grasp, so distant from us that we can't be in relationship with him? But after the coming of Jesus... Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who has known the mind of the Lord as so to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So this concept 
arises here that there's this particular mind of Christ. Now, will and mind is linked, but this isn't just Jesus who then is the humble person who gives his life on the cross. What Paul is, that's, that's part of it, but what Paul is saying here is there's this mind of Christ, a way of thinking which aligns with how Jesus thinks. And that's what I want to touch on today. And I want to say that part of the journey that we're on in Lent is learning to follow Jesus, but also learning to think like Jesus to have the mind of Christ which enables us as humans to then interact with God whose thoughts are so much greater than ours. But as soon as we talk about the mind of Christ and as soon as we talk about the thoughts of God, we run into something which exists in our minds, which is set up in our culture, which all of a sudden displaces all of this. And I want to sort of undo that to help us get where we need to go. Because we live in what is called a secular culture, and one of its base understandings of what a secular culture is, a secular culture organizes facts and knowledge and thoughts into two categories. On your left, is that correct? Yes. On your left, we have one category, which is the public facts and knowledge about the world. Here we have the things that as a culture, as a civilization, we agree upon. Here people would put scientific knowledge. Here would we would put our systems of government, what is true about the world. And so these are the things that people will say in public and be confident of saying in public. This shapes our education system. This is the stuff like say gravity, that you're going to say, and you're not going to feel like people are going to speak against you, that you believe in gravity. And so in this sort of space, religion is still allowed, but if it submits in a particular way. So if you are a Christian, you must then hold your beliefs, not in this sphere, because that would be seen as problematic, you're allowed to have them, but you must hold them in a kind of private sphere. And when you say something like, well, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, does that have the same weight as saying that Australia has this particular population number? Now, people will say, look, that, that's okay that you believe that. But essentially what that is, is not so much a fact as it is your belief. It's not so much knowledge as that's your personal value because we live then in this space where there's all kinds of different values and they're contrasted with facts and knowledge. So this is what we mean by a multicultural, multi-religious society. Now what's really interesting is understanding that this is a very, very Western concept. I heard an interview recently with an American guy who works for the US government, and he goes around the world trying to, uh, I guess, promote American forms of government. So one of the things that he talks about is the separation of church and state, which is very much where this idea comes from, you know, this, that idea comes from this. And he went to the Middle East, to an Islamic country, and he explained this. And people looked, and this is strange to them. And one young woman put her hand up and said, hang on, what if you believe 
and you have a religious faith and you believe it's true, by you not taking that then into the public space, how do you then love people if you just keep it to yourself in the private? It's a really, really good question. Because this concept of how we look at the world is actually shaped by an idea which is a couple hundred years old. In the 18th century, as the scientific revolution really kicked off and we went through this period which people call the Enlightenment, which is interesting, you just think about that world, that word, it's packed with values and assumptions, that before the Enlightenment, we were in the dark. But all of a sudden, this knowledge came and we became enlightened. And through discoveries in science, people believed that this key truth about the world could be taken from the study of science, and it worked in in many scientific experiments, but then they began to apply it to other things. And that key belief was this. Through applying key techniques of inquiry, humans could discover truth and certainty about the world. That I could examine something from a distance, observe it, mark it, research it, write up what my findings are and discover the essential truth about this particular object, which would then give me insight in how to operate within reality and within the world. Again, this is something from the scientific realm. The people began to believe that this was the key to then unlock all the mysteries of the world. That this was the key to unlock the mysteries of not just science, but politics, how we engineer our societies, human happiness, human flourishing, and even religion. A movement began where people thought, well, we don't have to really, in a sense, ask people to enter into this relationship with God, that we should look at Scripture and then find the essential elements, which no one can disagree with, and present them in a particular way, And people would just go, oh, that makes total sense, and I'll choose to follow. And this leaves the Christian then in this interesting position where particularly in the West, not just the Christian, but anyone who believes any religious belief, in this particular position where you always feel that there's this public weight pushing in on your private beliefs and values. The way that the system is set up is then built to say, yes, you have those values and we'll accept them, but do we really believe them? So we can say things like, in the West, look, all religions, I think they're essentially the same, but you can say that because actually you mean none of them really matter. None of them really have any content. So then the individual believer constantly faces this this almost cleaving of their mind where you're trying to work out, "Is is that just what I believe? Is that different? We have all these things we say, we don't believe that today. All of that sets up this kind of system. And so the Christian then is pushed into this place, and even some Christians have advocated for this particular vision where we look at faith and we go, okay, so there's all these realities that we know of today, and there's all these accepted beliefs and science, and over here's these sort of private beliefs and values and the supernatural and all of this stuff. So to believe, I've almost got to suspend my disbelief and do this leap of faith. 
famous scene, if you've seen it, I've seen it in church, I may have been one of the person doing this talk with this video as a youth pastor, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, and Indiana Jones is on this quest to find the Holy Grail, and he comes, as he has to get past all these different barriers and little things that the ancient people who built all the temples that he steals stuff from, um, created to stop him stealing stuff. Anyway, uh, he gets to this point where he sees this giant chasm and there's no way to traverse it. And he has this book that his father has, has left him and there's this picture of this holy knight of faith stepping out into the abyss. And I think the line's like, the, man, the knight of faith walks by faith. Now, the knight of faith reference is a really interesting one. It's actually referenced to a thinker called Søren Kierkegaard who said, writing at the time when science was discovering all this stuff in Denmark, basically said, well, the Christian today just has to make this leap of faith. Now, Kierkegaard was an incredible thinker on so many ways, but I just wonder about this point. Because what it says, therefore, is like, you've just got to jump. And Indiana Jones just puts his foot out and I love the image you can see on the, on the top right of almost that feeling like he's trying to reach for his heart, of like trying to get the feelings. Okay, I've got to put my mind off here and just go for the feelings. But then in his face, there's almost this look of terror. And I think that's actually what a lot of people feel today. This sense of like, okay, I, I sort of know this is true. How do I know this is true? Well, I sort of feel it. But I feel this terror like, what if it's not true? And you just got to make the leap. And he makes the leap. And just when you think he sort of puts his foot out, I'm not going to recreate it here because i got my eyes closed, but I could fall. But he steps out. And then all of a sudden, his foot hits this path which was unseen. Now, there's definitely truth in this. But it can make faith seem like you're just these people who make this irrational faith. And you're trying to hold that against the realities that you experience but then the fact that, oh, what if this is just madness and, and what if I'm making this leap of faith and how do I hold this all together? Now, the great problem is that this story of how we arrange the world is a couple hundred years old. And the great enlightenment that people wanted to happen in the world, the applying of science to everything in the world, where at the end of the 19th century, people were proclaiming that all religions would end, all disease would go, poverty would be, be eradicated, all wars would disappear as they applied this method of inquiry to the world, it doesn't happen. I could tell so many stories about this, but I just want to tell one story written by a soldier in World War I, a German soldier, who believed deeply that the world was going to turn and utopia was going to break out and this method of inquiry would free the world. And sitting in a trench, seeing the natural world turn to mud as industry and science didn't bring enlightenment, but actually brought terror and horror as his friends scrambled for their gas masks as the gas came across the trenches. He looked around and didn't see a world transformed by this new key of understanding. He saw a world turn to a living hell. Looking at the gas mask, he said something about this has actually made us less human. And the gas which went across those battlefields a couple decades later would be put into rooms as an entire culture and group of people in religion was almost wiped out. Hiroshima, the millions killed in Chairman Mao and Joseph Stalin's attempts to apply this method to politics and economics. 
and the 20th century turns into an absolute bloodbath, which continues in our day. And the surefire belief that if we could just observe something disconnected from it, rationally observe something, find its essence and truth, and aha, we have the answers to the world, the keys to the kingdom. This huge doubt begins to surround that actual belief. I just want to give you an example of this, how the world understands knowledge versus wisdom and insight and all these concepts by turning to the great oracle of our day, the leader of thoughts, Google, in particular the site Lifehack, which is like, I don't know what to do in life, you know, should I follow that monk, that, that Dalai Lama, no, just go to Lifehack. And I asked it, well, what is knowledge and what is wisdom and how do I understand? I just want to read this to you. It says of knowledge. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts and data. Okay, so that's that sort of scientific empirical understanding that you have learned about or experienced. It's being aware of something and having information. Okay. Knowledge is really about facts. Sorry, knowledge is really about facts and ideas that we acquire through study, research, investigation, observation, or experience. So that's what I'm talking about here. That's what knowledge is. Okay, so knowledge is observed it, have the facts, cool, that's a drum kit, gotcha. Wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern and judge which aspects of that knowledge are true, right, and lasting, and okay, I'm okay with you, and applicable to your life. Notice what's happened here? To your life. So all of a sudden, yes, certainty, it's a, it's a drum kit, but do I think it's a drum kit? Is this a container for my spaghetti? It's the ability to apply that knowledge to the greatest scheme of life. It's also deeper, knowing the meaning of, or reason, knowing why something is and what it means to your life. So hang on, are we certain here? And all of a sudden we're relative where I can make this up as I go along and I'm the ultimate authority here. Maybe the next one will help us. Insight, okay. Insight is the deepest level of knowing. Great, this is what we need. And the most meaningful to your life. Hang on, it's only insight if it's meaningful to your life. Insight is deeper and clearer perception of life, of knowledge, of wisdom. It's grasping the underlying nature of knowledge and the essence of wisdom. Insight is a truer understanding of your life and the bigger picture of how things are intertwined. Okay, it actually makes little sense. It's trying to have it both ways. A world where there's observable, researchable facts if you want to accept them. Now for a while, this could be held together. But what we've seen in the world in the last few years is this beginning to fall apart. For a while, this holding together in the academy where people could write essays seemed to go on, but now it's spilling out into the real world. And we now have a world of fake news where something happens in politics and two sides will see it completely differently, where we don't know what truth. There now is governments working against what they call truth decay. One example, I could go on for hours and have a several hour lecture here, but I won't, is an example of this is recently the idea behind this observe, observing of the world is that we, if we have peer-reviewed journals and academia, we can then judge what's true in the world. In the West, we have universities and places of learning and scientific research units to try and establish what's true in the world. And those methods were then put into the humanities. 
Now, I think it was the end of last year, there was a huge hoax done for a purpose in American academia. And the Atlantic reported on it. It was called the Sokol Squared, uh, which referenced an earlier hoax um, where these particular three researchers submitted 20 fake papers to different uh, academic journals, basically to show how ridiculous our understanding of knowledge had become. So they sent, they sent, this is just an example of one of them, they sent it to um, a particular uh, a journal, a humanities journal called Gender, Place and Culture. So I'll just read this out. The journals that fell for Sokol Squared, which is the hoax name they gave the hoax, published respected scholars from respected programs. For example, Gender, Place and Culture, which accepted one of the hoax papers, has in the past few months published works from professors at UCLA, that's a big esteemed college, Temple, Penn State, Trinity College Dublin, University of Manchester and Berlin's Humboldt University, among many others. So top, top universities and academics in the world. The sheer craziness of the papers the authors concocted makes this fact all the more shocking. One of their papers dismisses Western astronomy. So the idea that you observe the planets and we know what they are as completely sexist and imperialist. And it makes a case for physics departments, physics departments, to study feminist astrology or practice interpretive dance instead. This was accepted as a paper. Some of them are unbelievable. Um, one was about... Um, actually, some are quite rude. I'm not going to talk about them in church. Um, you can Google this. One was about the oppressive structures of dogs in Portland public parks, and that certain species of dogs were being oppressed by other dogs' performative um, behaviour. Uh, just amazing sort of stuff. Now, we can laugh about this, but what we have here is a battle which seems political, which is ultimately between now our scientific departments, which are trying to hold on to this methods, and our humanities, which deeply now, not just influence humanities departments, but education, local government, how we think about justice and these issues, they're in battles with each other. Now, one of the really interesting things is the new atheists who 10 years ago were attacking religion, now there's this battle where you've got people like Richard Dawkins, you know, who's an evolutionary biologist, arguing with these people from this gender studies field, Sam Harris, who was one of the new atheists, arguing with people from this sort of new left, which has almost like become like a new religion, and the culture ends up at this place where what's happening is this reverse has occurred. We're now private beliefs and values, because you can make up what you want, and now coming in and challenging public facts and knowledge. Hence the popularity that millions and millions of people around the world now believe there is a flat earth. And it's growing in belief. And that's just one example of many. So doubt's actually going both ways, which is fascinating. Dallas Willard says this. So real life which must assume answers, is abandoned by our knowledge institutions. So that actually have facts and knowledge and truth, with how, which helps you actually live a life. So it's abandoned by our knowledge institutions to feelings, force, politics, and traditions. Isn't that just our world at the moment? Isn't that the news when you turn it on? Isn't that just something that happens, a terrorist attack, a, political scandal, and all of a sudden, what seems to take over? You're just like, just help me understand this, and all you see on your social media platforms, on the news, is just clickbait and force and politics and tradition and feelings, and people just retreat. 
we're not just doubting, we're doubting now our whole systems of how we understand. And so Willard continues. Ragtag, incoherent answers float here and there with no responsible clarification and critique. That is where our society stands today. And we can point the finger, it's a society crazy, I'm just going to get on my life and go to Baddings and buy a shovel. But what this is saying is that, so real life, which must assume answers, that what does this give us as a place to stand and how do we construct a life out of this? So, so many people in the West, outside the church, try and fit the church into an intellectual system of facts and over here private feelings, but that whole system has collapsed. And it's collapsed amongst us. And we're seeing that now, not just in the religious sphere, but in the social sphere. And as Christians at this time, we need to move beyond an understanding which comes from the outside and actually go, okay, so when Paul talks about the mind of Christ, A, what is he saying? And B, how can this actually help the world at this time? How can this help you? If we're meant to be people of truth, truth, it's a very rare vegetable <laughs> mentioned in the Old Testament. People of truth and light, how do we do that? Well, I want to take us back to a moment that occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has just come in from the wilderness, which we've spoken about in this Lenten preaching series. And he arrives at a synagogue and in the synagogue, which is this houses of prayer and study of Scripture and Torah, Jesus gets up and it's his turn to read the Scriptures that day. And so he gets up and reads. Not an unusual thing to happen in a synagogue at that time or even today. But something changes in the middle as he opens the book of Isaiah. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, information that frees. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of the sight of the blind. Now that's actually true, it has real world implications about people who are caught in, in prisons and people who are actually physically blind. But there's a second deeper meaning as well. That actually means the people who are imprisoned in the ways that their mind and their desires and their wills are imprisoned. The people who can't see the world for actually how it is. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds something very nice that you might hear if you went to private school as you were waiting for recess in the chapel service. And now we have the year of the Lord's favor. And you're not thinking because you think about your lunch. But at this time, in Jewish people hearing this, who are hungering for God to come again, who are hungering for the day of the Lord, this year of Jubilee, this time of Shalom, when God would come and make the world right. And Jesus just got up and it's been going normal at this point. It's like, boom, it's here. The world just changed it. A different reality is breaking out and it's here right now. <laughs> drops the mic, rolls the scroll, drops the well, you couldn't drop a Torah scroll, that's very bad form. But he rolls up the scroll, like, <laughs> gives it back to the attendant, sits down. And you can imagine him just like sitting there. Everyone's just like, what just happened? And he just sits down. And he's not talking. And it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? 
Why? He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The day of the Lord is here. The year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom of God is here. It's here and it's here. I am him. This is knowledge and truth, but it's knowledge and truth with arms and legs that's walking and has come close. This is the God of mystery and transcendence that goes beyond human understanding, who comes in a storm and tells Job to brace himself, that Isaiah says is actually something that is so high we can't understand it. That mind is now amongst them. And we have to have this as our baseline of understanding what knowledge and truth is, not some failed and falling apart Western concept created by people 300 years ago who believed that they could conquer the world through achieving knowledge. And they did conquer the world, but not in the way of changing it, but so often in the way of taking from others and hurting themselves and unleashing war and brokenness. So what is reality then? That's the question we actually have to ask at this time. What is reality? What is truth? Jesus says it's the kingdom of God. And so therefore, to discover truth and knowledge, we must align with the way of living within the kingdom that Jesus shows us. So this is truth, but it's also faith, it's wisdom, it's a way, it's knowledge, it's not morality. Unlike the gobbledygook that life hack gives us, this is all captured in one. This is different. This undermines our current concepts of thinking. This is not something you can just observe from a distance and write notes on. This asks us to be involved. Tom Wright says this, faith is the response of the whole person to the whole gospel. Assent or agreeing with something is only ever one part of it. The gospel does not merely produce a mental reaction, a calculation, and a conclusion. Now, what he's getting at here is, often Christians, well-meaning Christians, can almost just buy that little division I had at the first slide where we go, okay, well, being a Christian then is like, the world says all this stuff, so we're going to believe that and, and tick. It's almost our version of staying in a distance and go, well, we believe these essential truths, let's hold on to that. Now, that's important, but this is so much more which Tom Wright says, that matters, but it never happens alone. Mind and heart are inextricably linked. That's why loyalty, pistis, the Greek word for faith, isn't just suspending disbelief, Indiana Jones walking out into something that cannot be seen, it's loyalty, loyalty. Wright continues, obedience of faith is the full-hearted, full-person response of loyalty to a message about Jesus. So therefore, we can only have spiritual knowledge of a personal God by being in a personal relationship with him. If the world's just data and a meaningless series of random accidents, sure, maybe you can find the answers to everything by just observing it. It's just a bunch of data. But if this is a story If this is a personal God, you're only going to find and understand that meaning by coming into relationship with that personal God, of sitting with him and being in his presence, of entering into the story. And what's great about a story is 
You don't know all the details. We know the contours of how it's going to end, but we're injected into the story. Your life is injected into the story. Where is it? It's in one of the later acts between Jesus' death and his resurrection and his kingdom. And you're in that stage where the church is now, he's meant to be his ambassadors and embassy in the world, living out of his kingdom before he comes again. So we can only have spiritual knowledge, truth and understanding of a personal God by being in personal relationship with him. So this isn't just, I'm a Christian because I believe these 22 things. That's important. But that's just the poor reduction of what faith actually is. We can only discover the spiritual knowledge of God's kingdom by committing to it, seeking it, dwelling within it, not just looking at the truth from back here and mm, agree with that, I'm not sure. Mm. When it gives me all the knowledge, I'll commit then. No, you only understand it. I'm not going to get on the drum stool. Um, that's where the metaphor went, but it's not going to happen. By actually dwelling within it. And if someone, if you understand this is actually a knowledge, this is not so much like something you sit up the back of a class and understand and write notes. This is like a trade, like pottery or building or ship creating or being an electrical mechanic. You've actually got to follow someone. And yeah, there's some theory in there, but you've actually got to get involved and get your hands dirty and actually walk in it. And if there's knowledge and the knowledge is away and it's alive to be inhabited, you need to be around people who can actually show it. And this explains something. Why did Jesus just not rock up in the first century and go, hello everyone, synagogue, um, I've just written the most incredible thesis on what it is to be fully human. It's going to be upsell at the back for 42 drachma um, and you can buy it and everything's in there. It's the most perfect book ever written. All my theories, it's on YouTube. Catch you later. I'm ascending. Send your checks to heaven.com. He doesn't. He actually models a way. He shows a way. Scripture, there is a book, but what's the, what's the book? The book is the story of God walking amongst humanity. It's information, but it's also a love letter. So we apprentice ourselves to those who know how to live in God's kingdom. I want to end actually with a movie. With us as authority, increasingly movies have become so banal. There's a formula which just gives people what they want, lots of explosions, storylines which we don't have to think too much about because we're so exhausted by a world where who knows what's true. The same old worlds of Marvel and Lord of the Rings 32, Star Wars episode 598. And so often, when you encounter something which you actually have to work for, we now actually oh, can't be bothered. This week, I'd, I'd wanted to watch it for ages, and I finally watched after like multiple people saying to me, you, you have to watch Terrence Malick's incredible film. The Tree of Life. Malik has this incredible Christian vision. And this is a deeply Christian-infused film. Not in a sense that it clearly presents this Christian message, 
but it's this film which goes for two and a half hours. There's like a three and a half hour version. And it's the story of a family in mid-century, Midwest of America. It's dreamlike. Not everything's explained. What Malik's great skill is, is almost making the reality of what it's truly like to be human. human. Being human is not just like, here's the 12 ideas that happen today. Humanity is this thing where you're in your body, you're experiencing the cold, there's light, there's touches of people, there's half-heard words. And the movie just floats through memory. You begin to see a character who's remembering back, played by Sean Penn. And the centerpiece of the movie actually begins with a quote from Job, from chapter 40. A family has lost their son. That's not me giving anything away to the movie. And then just shows the realities of that playing out, them remembering back. The mother, played by Jessica Chastain here, represents grace in the world. She's someone, you see her as a little girl, who the entire world is a place alive with God. So much of the dialogue is actually so strange. You have to go, what's going on here? And then you realize as a Christian, you get it. And I've, I've read reviews of people aren't Christians who don't know, they just can't process it. But so many of the words are whispered. I actually had to watch with the subtitles. It's actually whispered prayers to God. You see her as a young woman looking at the sky, at nature, observing the world. She's observing, but she's involved. She says, God, I give my life to you. She marries a man played by Brad Pitt and he too follows God. They go to church, they're trying to do the right thing, but something in him wants to try and conquer the world. He tries to create patents and try and teach his sons a different way to the mother. Instead of the way of grace, he tries to teach them the way of conquering nature and conquering the world. And this just plays out in this incredible, beautiful way where you almost have to just stop and let the movie read you instead of you reading the movie. So many things. I could, I could preach 20 sermons on this film. But the sense of what it is to be a father trying to raise kids when they're disobeying. So much of the movie is ordering. In the middle of the movie, there's this break where after the Job verse, you actually go back to this beginning of time and there's all these images of star constellations. It goes for 20 minutes. Okay, this is not, this is quite arty. I'll just warn you if you're thinking of watching it. This isn't an Adam Sandler flick. That, you just this thing. And then these images, which again, only those aware of scripture will get, where all of a sudden you're just seeing all these images and then you see like a paleosaur, I think it's called, on the beach. Like if you understand biblical language, like Leviathan. The movie goes, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, it's, it's hard to even capture in hours what grandeur, but it's this sense that we're living these very ordinary lives of disciplining kids, of sitting, of loneliness, of loss, of dinners, of touches on shoulders, of disagreements, of fights, of mistakes, of errors, of trying to be a good child, of trying to be a good parent. And behind all of this, there's this transcendent glory at play. 
The theologian Peter Lighthart wrote a book about the movie called The Shining Glory. And for him, the essence of what this movie is about is this sense that for the earth, what it says in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a concept of truth. This is a concept of information. But this is also a concept of that broadens it out from the Western reduction of this. This is relationship. This is supernatural. It's natural. It's God's glory. And it invades everywhere. And where the scriptures say the world is heading in the day of the Lord is when this true knowledge will fill the entire world. A lot of the movie takes... The posture of, takes the, so the viewpoint of the younger son of the couple who struggles with his dad's attempt to shape him into someone who's strong, who can fight in the world and conquer the world. And finally, I won't give it all away, but Brad Pitt's character comes to this incredible line where he says this. I wanted to be loved because I'm great, a big man, but I'm nothing. Look, the glory all around us, the trees, the birds. I lived in shame. I dishonored it all, and I didn't notice the glory. God said, those who knock, he'll open the door. Those who seek shall find. He's not going to give you a bunch of dot points. He may not even give you the supernatural transcendent experience which happens like a Thomas experience where he's able to put his fingers in the wounds of Jesus so there's no doubt, which even still, you can still doubt. Was I mad? What happened there? What he does invite you into is human life. Walking with Jesus, the reality of his kingdom, a new way of looking at the world. All around you is glory. Don't miss it. This Lent, step into it. Follow his way. He is just waiting to embrace you and show you his glory. Band's going to come. I'm going to pray. Father, we live in a world which has taken truth and reduced it, shrunk it down into something which can be fit on an A4 piece of paper, but even that's just not where things are going. It's become chaotic and confused and contested. And yet you tell us, Father, to be people of truth. And so, Father, we see that truth not just in an A4 piece of paper with a research written on it, to be peer-reviewed. Father, we see you, the risen Christ, walking with us in every element of our lives, your presence next to us. Help us, Father, not to just discover truth, but to step into truth, to indwell in truth, to inhabit truth, to walk with truth. I just want to pray, if anyone here has been struggling with that first slide, this false cutting of the world, where Christianity is just degraded to some personal value that you have. Always on the defensive. I want to just pray over that Jesus, that you give us spiritual knowledge that we can trust, and that knowledge is you.
You lived 2,000 years ago. You showed us how to live. You lived the greatest life that so many of the great thinkers of the world have not seen because it was humble. And as Paul said, you lived the way of foolishness to make a fool of the world. You walked the way of wisdom. So we may discover the wisdom in you. So Father, strengthen our faith. Help us to discover it as we walk with you. Help us to realize that it's not about what information comes across our path, but it's the direction our hearts and feet are walking with you. Father, help us not to miss the glory in the world. This world is alive with you. Give us new glasses to see it. Help us to submit to the submitted king. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's now just move into a time of communion. Communion, common union. Sitting with him, eating with him in the most ordinary of ways. That's what this meal's about. That's what we're going to do now. If you don't want to be someone who misses the glory, if you have anything that you want to bring to God, there's going to be people on the sides to pray for you. But let's just let him embrace us. Let truth hold us. Let's move now into this period of submission. Let's stand. And sing to God. So come Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts, our minds, our wills. Cast away doubt. Let us be vessels of truth in this time, Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen. Let's worship.